and join me in 1 Kings chapter 19 as we continue in a series. If you're joining with us, we're in 1 Kings 19, the life of Elijah. And as I said earlier, there are notes that the ushers are moving around the odd train distributing. Just raise your hand and they will hand you one of these notes. We're in 1 Kings. We're going to get started in chapter 19 this morning as we continue on. Kids say some really strange things and we all know that as parents that our kids have probably caught us off guard saying some comment. Here are some comments by kids that have to do with God, religion, things with church that I found interesting. A mother saw that a thunderstorm was forming mid in the mid-afternoon at the same time that her seven-year-old would be walking home the two blocks from school, so mom decided to meet the little girl on the street. She saw the little girl way down the street walking nonchalantly in the rain and not bothered at all by the thunder or periodic lightning. In fact, mom saw that the little girl would stop and look up and smile. The two times that lightning all of a sudden showed up in the area, the little girl would stop, smile, and then keep on walking. About that time, the little girl saw mom and ran to her. Mom asked what she was doing looking up when there was lightning. She was so excited. She says, Mom, all the way home, God has been taking my picture. <laughs> Attending a wedding for the first time, a little girl whispered to her mom, why is the bride dressed in white? Well, mom thought, how is she going to explain this so quickly? Because white is the color of happiness and today is the happiest day of the bride's life. The child looked at the couple now up front and said, so why is the groom wearing black? <laughs> Sunday school teacher asked her class, what was Jesus' mother's name? The child answered, Mary. Teacher asked, does anybody know who the Jesus' earthly father, what his name was? Verge, one of the kids said. Confused, the teacher said, where'd you get that? The child said, you know, people are always talking about Verge in Mary. <laughs> I didn't write it. I'm just reading it. Okay. <laughs> Sunday school teacher asked her class, who lived in the Garden of Eden? The child answered, the Adams family. <laughs> Never thought of it that way. After the child's dedication of his baby brother, Jason was sobbing all the way home in the back seat of the car. His dad asked him three times, what's wrong, what's wrong? Finally, the little boy blurted out, the preacher said he was praying for me and my brother to be brought up in a Christian home. I really want to stay with you guys instead. <laughs> the Joneses had company over for dinner after church. At the table, mom turned to five-year-old Susie and said to her in pride, why don't you pray for our meal? But I don't know what to say, Ma, Susie said. Just say what you've heard Mommy say. The little girl bowed her head and said, Lord, why on earth did I invite these people to dinner? <laughs> uh, kids can say things that are confusing or get us into trouble. That can happen. The shame of it is, is when we get older and we still have confusion about the Lord and about things. I put in your notes in your paragraph that there's a lot of people who have a lot of confusion about the Old Testament and New Testament, which I, I just don't understand. People will say that the God of the Old Testament was a God of justice and holiness, but the God of the New Testament was a love and grace. He's the same God in all eras of time. He is immutable. He changes not. And some of that comes from a confusion about what grace is at times. In fact, maybe we need to define grace. Some of you would say grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. You know, the G-R-A-C-E. A fellow preacher wrote in a book that he has that he had an experience in his home that taught him more about grace than a lot of his theology books. It happened when he and his wife brought into their home an eight-year-old that they decided to adopt. The little girl had been in the orphanage for the first few years of her life. 
She had developed a number of bad habits and there was a family in that region that had taken the little girl into their home and with the intent that they were going to adopt her. That family struggled with her and she with that family. And oftentimes their response when she didn't do something right was to punish her by taking things away, by threatening her. Well, one of their most common and, and powerful threats were that we aren't going to take you to special places when we go as a family. In fact, this family, two or three times a year, since they live close to the region, they would go to Disney World. And they told the little girl, if you don't behave, you can't go. And sure enough, she wouldn't behave. And she would be the only child in that family left behind with a sitter while the family would go spend their week or whatever at Disney World. After a period of time, the little girl did not improve and that family did not get bond with her, so they returned the little girl to the orphanage. They dissolved whatever relationship they had. That was the time that Timothy Paul Jones and his wife got involved with the little girl through an orphanage ministry. They saw her and they decided to bring her into her family. They brought her into the family and she still had issues. But they try to deal with them from a biblical point of view and they try to deal with her and teach her about sin and forgiveness and grace. Then they learned as time went by that this little girl craved for the moment that one day she would be able to go to Disney World. She had seen the pictures. She had heard the stories from that previous family. She thought it was a magical kingdom, a real magical kingdom. And she wanted more than anything. In fact, when they would do family devotions, she would pray that someday she could go to Disney World. And so they decided when he was going to have a preaching event that was going to be close to that area, they decided that the family would join and they told her, we as a family are going to go to Disney World. She was so excited. She was finally going to be able to go. But as time went by, she still misbehaved. And every time she misbehaved and they were doing the biblical correction, taking her aside, disciplining, praying with her, she would say, can I still go to Disney World? Can I still go to Disney World? Finally, uh, Mr. Paul Jones had thought he needs to have a conversation with her. So he sat her down and she said, he said, you know, I want to talk to you about Disney World. She says, I knew it. I knew it. I knew you wouldn't take me. He goes, no. We said we were going to take you. We said that we as a family, are you part of our family? I am. Then we as a family are going and you're going with us. She said, really? Yeah. Two days before they were to leave, she got into real big trouble. He took her aside and he said, now we need to deal with this and we need to correct this. She says, and you won't take me to Disney World. He goes, no, I said we would, but we need to deal with this. And he, they went with the issue. They went to Disney World the two days later. The little girl was apprehensive all the way that she wasn't going to make it, that at the last moment they would say she can't go. They get there and that night after that whole day, he said the little girl was in a stupor. She was still smiling. It was pasted on her face as they got to the hotel. She was dead tired, but she was so excited. She had seen all those princesses. She had seen those critters. She had seen the rides and she had lived her dream as an eight-year-old. She crawled up into daddy's lap. And she was just smiling and smiling and he watched her for a bit. She closed her eyes and he thought she had fallen asleep, but she hadn't. She just said to him, she says, I'm so glad I'm part of your family. She said, I got to go not because I'm good, but because I'm yours. That's grace. That's grace. Grace isn't we get to go to heaven because we're good but because we're his. And we become his by putting faith in Jesus Christ. 
by asking him to forgive us our sins, knowing we can't do it in and of ourselves. We can't get baptized. We can't go to church enough. We can't learn and memorize enough scripture. We can't do enough good deeds to one another. But only by the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ can we have forgiveness that makes it possible we can get into heaven. When we become born again, when he adopts us into his family, when we become his, we are sure we are going to heaven. That story of grace is pictured in the Old Testament and the New. Now, in the Old Testament, there's pictures of judgment as well, as well as in the New. The story of Elijah, we've seen how God made it clear he hated the sin, the false worship, the putting Baal before Jehovah, how he judged the nation with years of, of drought, how he judged them to the point that he demanded that their false prophets, their false preachers would be destroyed so as not to contaminate the people anymore. We see judgment. But we also see pictures of grace. In Elijah's life, this man who was zealous for the Lord as we've talked about how he started his ministry, proclaiming to the king, you have done wrong, you need to repent because God is going to put a drought. And then for that period of time, he remained faithful when God took him into the wilderness. And as the months passed and the drought was affecting the people and the king was manhunting for after Elijah to get him to bring rain back as God's spokesman, he stayed in the wilderness. The brook dried up. God graciously provided for him by moving him to another area. He was zealous. He went to Zarephath, the hometown of Queen Jezebel, the most wicked queen, the king's beloved who was promoting Baal worship. Here he went there because God said. There he stayed with the widow. God provided for him as he and the widow and her boy, they stayed there and God providing just day by day the food stuff and the little boy died. And Elijah didn't get bitter, didn't get angry with the Lord. He struggled, Lord. Okay, would you restore the life? And he prayed and he prayed and God did a miracle restoring the life of the little boy. And he remained faithful as a servant of God in that time, even going to the contest at Mount Carmel and getting all the people together at the end of the three and a half years and declaring before the people that God is God, building the altar, putting the sacrifice, dousing it with water so there's no way it could burn, calling fire down from heaven to show that God was God. And this, then God's answer lapped up the entire, the entire altar and sacrifice. And he turned to the people and he encouraged them to do what's right, get rid of these false prophets. He was zealous. He was faithful. He was bold for the Lord time and time again. But then he fell flat on his face. The queen, hearing the news of what had happened, wanted to stop the revival, so she sends a note saying, I'm going to kill you. And he, in fear, he ran away. He left the revival. He left the people in a lurch, and he runs several hundreds of miles away, down into the south. And it's there that God deals with him. God meets him in a cave, and God has a conversation with him that we read about here last week in 1 Kings 19. How God challenges him, but his initial response, both in verse 10 and verse 14, is the same where he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altar, slain your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left. They seek my life. And the Lord speaks to him and deals with him. And we looked at how God did that last week. But God talks to him in verse 15, and the Lord said, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. 
And when you come, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, shall you anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahola, shall you anoint to be your prophet in your room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. Him that escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Story of a man who's defeated, subject to like passions as we, willing to give up, to hide in the cave, to stay in the wilderness, to even say, as we read in verses 4 and 5 in the last couple weeks, that it is enough, I want to die, he's done. And God is saying, I want you to get back to the revival. But he, he, his response initially was, why? Maybe it's like you and me at times. I've blown it. There's no way of recovery. It, it's just, I've gone beyond the point of, of getting things back. Can you even forgive me? What is portrayed in the next couple chapters is just an amazing story of grace. Not God overlooking what he's done, but of God forgiving him and blessing his life despite the falling flat on his face. I look at the story, and I can't help but wonder and think that despite his feelings of despair, when he repented, God poured out his grace upon him in a marvelous way. It's a wonderful aftermath to this event. It's chapters that follow and how God reports the story. Now, you might be wondering, you say, where in the story does it say that he repented? It doesn't. There is no one statement that says, and Elijah repented. But there is the fruits of repentance when you read the next verse. When God had said, go, return your way, get back to what you should do, in verse 15, look at verse 19. So he departed thence and found Elisha. Those words indicate that he had repented, he had returned to the way to do what God had told him to do, that he was going now from his, his mountain of misery, he was going back to what God had told him to do, get back on the horse, ride it again, get back on the bike, do it again, whatever phrase you want to use here, he departs, leaves that self-pitiful state and goes to start serving the Lord once again. Now in that, you can't help but conclude that you see how God responds to the repentant believer with such grace that you and I, every time we fall flat on our face, we ought to run back to God immediately to get repentance done, forgiveness, and experience grace once again in our life. Can I show you just real quickly how grace worked in his life after he repented? You have, first of all, because of the grace of God, the effects of many of his good works still survived. What I mean by that is this that even though he had run away from the revival, even though he had left the people in a lurch, and he had created some of, a, some of a situation that, man, there was a mess now spiritually. The people wanted to do what's right, but he had gone. Does that mean that everything he had done the last three and a half years is wasted? That what he had taught didn't bring about any fruit? No, actually, actually, as I referred to last week, God is still going to use him to bring about the removal of Baal worship. You see in the text where he says, go and anoint Hazael, go and anoint Yehu. I mentioned this last week, let me repeat it. 
that what he does is God says, I can still work, I can still get the revival moving, it's going to, it's been limping along now. The last few weeks that you've been on the run, it's going to limp a little bit, there's going to be a consequence, but it's not defeated. You go get Haziel, you go anoint Yehu. Haziel and Yehu are the two men that in the next 20 years, they go against the house of Ahab. They destroy all of Ahab's progeny and the Baal worship. Yehu gets it out of the land. He's the one that when he comes riding back into Jerusalem, remember that what they do is they get rid of Jezebel and they defeat her and the dogs come and lick up the palms of her hands that are left. It's under him. God still can work and create a revival amongst the people. Elijah, you jeopardized it. Elijah, you put it into a hindrance moment, but that doesn't mean it cannot be recovered totally, that it's unsalvageable. That's not the case. In fact, God even says, I want you to go and anoint Elisha to be the prophet in your room. Now, initially, I would have looked at that and said, that means God says, enough of you, I'm going to replace you. Well, actually, he's got to be replaced. He's getting old. That's just a norm. There's going to be a replacement. But to say that God never used Elisha again, and that this was a, uh, Elijah again, and, and Elijah, Elisha came as a replacement because he, God was done with Elijah, you aren't reading the rest of the story. I wasn't reading the rest of the story when I said that in a previous message. In this text, as you go through, God still uses Elijah in a marvelous way. And God is going to work with and through Elijah, but the first thing he has to do is, Elijah, I want you to go and get a prophet. You need a replacement. You need somebody to be your successor. Maybe that's the better term than replacement. You need to have somebody be able to continue the revival in the days ahead. It, they need to listen. And they need to have somebody who is going to teach them. And there's obviously people who are willing to listen. I want this prophet Elisha to be trained to be able to go back and to work with them. Here, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Back in, you know, whatever, the Stone Age, back in the 90s, I bought a car. It was a cheap, cheap Honda car that I bought. I bought it from one of the missionaries who came through our area who was staying in our church for a few months. He bought this car from somebody that he could use during his, his furlough time and when he was done with it, he turned around and sold it to me for the same amount that he had bought it from somebody else. It was like 50 bucks. And so I bought this car and within weeks, you know, the car had leaks here and problems there. I had all the carpeting torn out because of the water leaks. I had repairs and not everything on the car worked. Okay, the radio didn't work, and, you know, the air conditioning didn't work, and the fan didn't work most of the time. It was a, you know, it was a beater car. And I drove it around, and then I decided, well, you know, it's working, it's fine. And about that time, Tony got his license. And so it was like, this is the most I'm spending on that guy to drive. <laughs> so he drove it for a period of time. I remember one time him coming home and saying, Dad, you know, the light, I think it was the lights. The, the lights don't work anymore. And so I'm standing there looking in the front of the car and I'm thinking, why aren't the lights working? And I traced the wires back and the wires were, were severed underneath the car and they, they ran where they shouldn't have. They were close to the frame of the car in between things. And it was like, how in the world do headlights get severed? The wires. And I'm sitting there, I'm going, how did these wires get severed? And Tony's youngest brother, Ben, said, I think it was when Tony flew over that hill and landed really hard. 
sure enough, I went and found out that he had jumped over, anyway, and severed the, so I drove the car, we had him drive it, and then I, it, this car gave a little bit more problems, and I'm thinking, it's 50 bucks, it's time to get rid of it, no, don't spend any money. Because, you know, it had broken down, we had to get it towed someplace, I got it started running, but it was like, this car is going to nickel and dine me, it's 50 bucks, time to get rid of it. So I put a for sale sign on it, thinking that this car's on its last leg. Two doors down, a neighbor bought it for their kid going to college. That girl drove it for four years of college. <laughs> a cheap car, because I sold it for what I bought it for, thinking that, you know, that'll be enough. And this car that gave me a little, little bit of problems, I wanted to get rid of so quickly. Sometimes we think God does that with us. Got problems, I want to unload you. I want to get rid of you. That's not what he does with Elijah. He says, Elijah, I, I still can use you. What you made is a mess, but it is salvageable. In fact, let me take you to point number two. God in grace says that now that you've repented, I still have a job for you to do. I still have a ministry for you. You can impact people. The first impact. He goes down, and it says in verse 19, and this is worth another message next week, so he, or in a couple weeks. So he departed thence, found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who is plowing, and it talks about how Elijah passes by him, casts the mantle on, and then he, the Elijah uh, and Elisha have conversation. But look at the end of verse 21. Then Elisha, he, arose and went after Elijah and ministered to him. And then you start following the story and you start flipping pages and you see that for the next 10 years, Elijah is at the side of Elisha. I mean, this is, Elisha is at the side of Elijah. You figure out what I'm saying here, okay? Getting the two so mixed up. That what happens is, is they hang with each other for 10 years and it's a training program. God, or God is having Elijah mentor Elisha, who is going to have double ministry, do twice as many miracles, have an impacting ministry upon the people. God is saying, Elijah, I'm going to use you. You blew it. You left the revival, but I still have an impacting ministry for you. You can still be used to train this young man who has not had any prophet school before, He's working on a successful farm. You go, you call him, you train him over the next 10 years, and he's going to be your successor. And God used Elijah in that regard. Doesn't this remind you of another guy that God used after he had denied the Lord three times? And then even though he had denied the Lord three times, when Jesus met with him by the seaside, God says to him, he says, do you love me more than these? And asks him three times. And in all three responses, he says, Lord, I really like you. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. God still had a job for Peter. Peter's first message that he gets up and preaches, 3,000 people get saved. Could God use a fallen saint? The answer is, after we repent, by grace, God could still use us. That's grace. Do you, want to see, do you want to see really an interesting, impacting story? Go to chapter 21. Just look at, look at the chapter headings. The chapter 20 talks about Ahab. But go to chapter 21. Any of you have a paragraph heading on chapter 21? Ahab and what? Who? Naboth. Do you know anything about Ahab and Naboth? It's, it's several years after the drought has passed. 
some figure about six years. The land is getting fruitful again. King Ahab is looking from his palace, summer, winter palace, I don't know, but he's looking from it, and he sees out there Naboth, his vineyard. Naboth is a very successful farmer. His vineyard is lush. It is beautiful. Ahab, being the man of low character, he wants that vineyard. He desires it, and he's craving it, and it's consuming him. He's one of these compulsive individuals. He's got to have it. So he goes and talks to Naboth. And Ahab proposes, I'll buy it from you. Naboth refuses to sell it because he is operating by the practice that family heritage is part of his Jewish heritage. He's not going to give up the land that God has given to his family. So he says no. Ahab is so disappointed he can't get what he wants, he goes into his three-year-old mode. He starts pouting. His wife Jezebel comes in and asks him, what's wrong, honey babe? Why are you so sad? And his response is, I can't have Naboth's vineyard. And he's crying and she said, what, what's the deal here? You're the king. You can do whatever you want. You can take it if you want. I'll take care of it, honey babe. Just trust me. She goes and she signs letters. She hires some false uh, men liars, to present a case in court against Naboth. These liars, these sons of Belial, they go to the court and they say, we heard Naboth use God's name in vain. He blasphemed God. And so under Jewish law, isn't this weird? They're going to accuse him of blaspheming God, and she doesn't even believe in God. Anyway, she gets them to make false accusations. They haul him to court, and the, the, the sentence is pronounced, he's got to be stoned. So she has him killed under false pretenses. Soon as he's dead, the story says that when Ahab hears about it, Ahab goes out and he claims the property as his own. Divine king's right. I can take the land. That's when we read about Elijah. The story is concluding what it says in verse 16. 2116, it came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Watch verse 17. This is now several years later after the fall of the revival. The word of the Lord came to who? Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise and go meet your old friend Ahab. Isn't that interesting? Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to take it. You shall speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? You shall speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your blood, even yours. And Ahab said to Elijah, Now, let, let's pause there. They have a conversation. In the conversation, what happens is he rebukes the king, tells him he, he's wrong. What's interesting is the king's response. Jump down further in the chapter. Because Ahab comes and, um, I'm sorry, uh, Elijah comes and tells Ahab, you're going to be punished by God. It, go to verse 27. It came to pass when Ahab heard those words, that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. And the word of the Lord said, see how Ahab humbles himself before me? Isn't that interesting? That God used Elijah 
as a messenger from God to humble King Ahab. Absolutely amazing that Ahab still can impact the hardest, most ungodly man. In fact, did you see what it said about him just before that? Uh, verse 25, there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to more wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. He did very abominably in following idols according to all the things as did the Amorites whom the Lord cast off. Right before he shows some semblance of asking to be humbled before the Lord, God says, this is one of the most wicked men of the entire Old Testament. He's one of the hardest hearted and God used Ahab, uh, Elijah to impact his life. Can God still use you? Can God still work? In fact, let's add another image of grace. Not only does God salvage the ministry, not only does God use him to impact people, but God helped Elijah overcome that which had overcome him. What I mean by that is this. If you and I go back to chapter 19, verse 1, when he received that death threat from Jezebel, what did he do? It said he ran. Anybody remember? He ran for his life. What's that tell you about him? What's his emotion? Overriding emotion, what is it? Fear. He's afraid of Jezebel. He's afraid of dying. He's afraid of the persecution that he's been opposed to, that he stood up. But all of a sudden in this moment, he collapsed. And when he collapsed, he was overcome by that besetting sin of fear at this moment. That horrible, that horrible depression then came as a result. And so he ran for his life. And remember in chapter 19, verses 10 and 14, he kept on saying, they seek my life. They seek my life. And he's implying that both Ahab and Jezebel, they are after him. He's exaggerating some of the situation. It was Jezebel. She was taking care of it for her honey babe king by trying to get rid of him. And so now he's fearful. He runs and that leads him. He was overcome by fear. But go to chapter 21. Chapter 21 when God says, go and speak to the king. Go and talk to the king. He comes six years later when the Spirit of the Lord comes to him and says, I want you to go and talk to the king. Watch this. Watch the conversation. Now there's a, there's a, a kind of a harsh word in the English that I'm going to override here. But look at verse 20. And Ahab, so Elijah is in the presence of Ahab. When Ahab sees Elijah, what does he say to him? Verse 20 of chapter 21. He says, uh, did you find me, friend? Is that what your Bible reads? No, what did he call him? This guy hasn't let it go. He still considers Elijah to be his enemy. And Elijah answered, I found you because you sold yourself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Hey, those are tough words from the guy who the last time they met, he ran away. He goes on, Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will take away your possession and will cut off everyone from Ahab so that none can urinate against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel, and will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, and the son of Ahijah. For the provocation, he says, wherewith you have provoked me to anger, and made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel also speak, uh, spake the Lord, saying, the dog shall eat Jezebel. Do you get what Elijah's doing? Elijah who ran in fear from these people, he comes to confront them. They're still very wicked people. They haven't changed one bit. He isn't looking and saying there's a glimmer of hope for these two. 
He's coming because they killed somebody. They have been opposing God worship, and so he comes to them, and he comes to a guy who isn't friendly. Ahab, uh, Ahab hasn't sent friendly tweets to Elijah over the last six years. The first time they see each other, he right away, you're my enemy. There's animosity here. But Elijah goes to them. He delivers a message, a message of judgment, a message of condemnation. And he even talks about Jezebel and condemns this woman who wanted to take his his life here six years earlier. What has been restored to Elijah? He ran out of fear. What's back? His faith, his boldness. Here he is, he has overcome personal fears, and he's even going to minister to these people who caused him to stumble. You know, that's not the only one. Go to the next book, in chapter 1 of the next book, go over a little bit, and you read at the, as they were closing down his life, you read that their son has come to the throne. Ahab and Jezebel are gone. And instead, Ahaziah is now the king of this region. And we read in verses 1 and 2 that Ahaziah is following his parents' footstep, and what he does, for some reason he's on the roof, whatever the roof is, he falls through the roof, and he suffers an injury. He wants to know, is he going to get better? So we read in this text, which is interesting how he unfolds this, that Ahaziah fell down through the lattice in the upper chamber. He was sick. He sent messengers and said, go and inquire of, who's he want them to go and talk to? Beelzebub. In the New Testament, who is called Beelzebub? The devil, Satan. It's a New Testament term for Satan. So he says, go and inquire of Beelzebub. There's a temple there in Ekron. By the way, Ekron is a Philistine city. It's one of their capital, five major capitals. So you go to this pagan city. You go and find out from this devil-worshipping temple. You find out whether I'm going to survive or not. This is a Jewish king going and following after evil at its height. And so what we read in verse 3, the angel of the Lord says to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it not because there is, is not a God in Israel that you go and inquire Beelzebub? Now therefore say to the king, okay, so here's what the Lord says, you shall not come down from your bed on which you art gone up, you shall die. And Elijah leaves the messengers. The messengers go back. They tell the king that we saw this guy. He told us that we should stop our trip to Ekron. We should come back and give you the message from the Lord. Ahaziah says, well, what did he look like? He was a hairy man. He was an old man. He was a real bold man. I know him. He's the guy that gave my mom and dad so much trouble. That's Elijah, the Tishbite. That's a prophet. Where is he? And so the story unfolds that what happens is the king wants to get rid of Elijah. And so he sends people after Elijah. He sends 50 soldiers. You read about it in the next few verses. He sends a troop of soldiers that go there. They, they come towards Elijah. Their message is, their orders are, you go and get, the, get Elijah, bring him back to me. And so the soldiers go, they find Elisha sitting up on the hill, it says, and he sees the soldiers coming. So he's got, a, he's got a view. He can tell these guys are after his life. The last time somebody said they were going to send soldiers after him, he ran away in fear. This time he doesn't budge. He doesn't move. Instead, what he does as the story goes on, and you pick up the story, it says, Elijah said to the men down below, in verse 10, he said, if I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee, you and your 50. 
and there came down from heaven fire that, that came down and consumed him. He doesn't run. He stays there. And this time in faith, he calls down fire as judgment upon those who would do him harm. And so the 50 are destroyed with the captain. And so here he is. He's trusting the Lord in boldness. And short time after that, King Ahaziah sends another 50 with the captain. And they want him to come down. And he responds the same way. Fire comes down to the second group and destroys them. Ahaziah is not giving up. He sends a third group of soldiers to the same spot. Elijah stays there. The third group comes, and the captain is much more polite. He says, you know, really, I'm under orders. It's not me that's after you. It's the king that's after you. And we read, and this is an important thought as you go down. It says, um, verse 13, he sent uh, again a captain of a third, 50 of 50, and the third captain of 50 went up, fell, came and fell on his knees and besought him and said, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life, the life of the 50 of your servants, be precious. Behold, there came down fire that destroyed my predecessors. Verse 15, look at the first few words. And somebody speaks to Elijah. Who is it? The angel of the Lord, go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he rose and went down with him. Here he is, this fellow, this Elijah, who ran in the past with a death threat via a note, stay still, solid, not moved. He goes with boldness to Ahab. He goes with boldness to Ahaziah and speaks to Ahaziah and tells him about God's judgment. This man who clearly fell flat on his faith, is restored to a place of faith and courage. You can overcome that which overcame you. And it's all by grace. It's pure grace. Now, you look at the story, you just want to remind yourself, he's experiencing the presence of God. The angel of the Lord is with him and speaking with him. You notice that he's experiencing the power of God. He's able to bring down that fire once again. He is able to experience the peace of God, that he isn't running, he isn't fleeing. He's standing strong. This guy hasn't been forsaken by God. This guy isn't cast off by the Lord. He's experiencing grace after he repented. And as a result, he overcomes that which overcame him. Think about it. What has knocked you down and out? What has caused you guilt, discouragement, thoughts of quitting because of your jealousy, because of the greed that stumbles you, because of the illicit thoughts that get victory over you at times, because of that fear of serving the Lord, because of that spirit of anger and revenge? What has overcome you? According to this text, and according to other New Testament passages, when you repent, it is by grace that God can help you to overcome that which has overcome you. Do you remember what it says? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But it doesn't stop there. It says, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is victory over that which has defeated us. That's grace. That's God. That's how the God that we worship today can work in our lives if there is repentance and returning to the Lord. When one returned, like Elijah, he experienced that God salvaged some of what he had ministered in the past. That God's grace used him to impact other people, even hard-hearted people that he struggled with. 
that God gave him the victory over that which caused him to fall flat on his face. Can I give you number four grace? Number four grace is this, that when he repented, God in grace let him enjoy a grand entrance to heaven. Right? We all know the story, 2 Kings chapter 2, and again, this is one of those messages we'll do in length later on. It says in verse 11, and it came to pass as they went on. It's Elijah and Elisha walking together. And they talked that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and they parted the two asunder. And Elijah went up by the whirlwind into heaven. Isn't that amazing? He got raptured. <laughs> he got taken away. Now, we talk about grand grand entrances, and he's one of the two in the Old Testament that went bodily into heaven, Enoch and him. And I'm not saying that we're going to be bodily raptured away if we're right with the Lord, and if you're not right with the Lord, you won't be. We talked about that in Sunday school. And I'm not saying that that's what this text teaching. What this text teaches me is that what is true is that if we fall flat like a Peter and deny the Lord, if there is genuine repentance by grace... God is still able to work in your heart so that you can hear one day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. By the way, none of us deserve to hear that at all. It is only by grace that we could possibly hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. God's grace, amazing that God would allow him to experience that transport. I told you a few weeks ago that we, when we went on vacation, we took my mother-in-law for a two, three-day trip, went up to the area of northern Minnesota. And part of the things that we were doing is we wanted to just give, have her have a good experience, so we got her on a train ride, and we took her down this train. She absolutely loved this train ride because she was in a wheelchair that she couldn't go in the regular cars, uh, the, the car right behind the... the uh, the engine, thank you. The car behind the engine, you see just two openings, big openings? That's where she had to sit because she was in a wheelchair. I called it her cattle car. She didn't call it that, but I called it her cattle car, and that she could sit there and enjoy this beautiful view. She absolutely loved it. I scored really a lot of points, okay? <laughs> and then on top of it, we took her on this little cruise of, that, of the harbor there. She absolutely loved it. Thought this was the neatest trip that she could do these things that she hasn't been able to do. Now me, I thought the neatest trip was going down this thing. I thought it was so cool and so neat that, that, you know, that I went down that and with and without the cart. That I went down this thing. But we're talking about transportation. Elijah had the coolest. He meets the Lord. But when he meets the Lord, there's no shame there's no embarrassment because he repented. He had asked for forgiveness when it was offered. He didn't continue to insist on doing his way until there was a point that he had come to the point of no return. He responded when the word was talked to him. When the Lord spoke to him in the still small voice, he repented. He returned to serving the Lord. And he enjoyed a glorious entrance. And so can you. So can I when we fall flat on our face. If we respond quickly with repentance, there is grace to the repentant individual. I love it. I love the story that God in his grace can salvage some of the mess that we make. That God in his grace can still use us that God in his grace will help us to overcome that which overcame us. That God in his grace 
says I don't have to make a return, you're, you're coming to heaven, an embarrassing moment, it can be one that you can enjoy. That's grace. That's God. What do I learn from it? What do I walk away with? Knowing this is how grace works, it makes it possible for you and me to serve him no matter what has gone on in our life in the past, that God could still use us. At different levels, I understand. Different consequences, we understand. But by grace, he could still use us in some way. That grace makes it inexcusable to do anything but repent when we've fallen. When we think about that grace, we have no excuse to say, I'll hang on to bitterness, I'll hang on to anger. No. That God's grace... God's forgiveness, God's restoration makes it mandatory that we give him praise, that we worship him. I was reading an account about a gentleman who was telling the true story. His name is Bedner, and he was writing about what happened to him and his fellow airplane airplane crew that were in a B-17 that had been in bombing raids over Germany, and that they had gone over this one time, and they were hit. They knew they were hit by some of the shell anti-aircraft fire. They got back to the base, and when they got back to the base, to their shock, they found out that they were hit by a shell that went into the gas tank of the plane, but never exploded. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. He writes the story, and then he did an interview afterwards, and in the interview he's talking about, so they, they wanted, you know, they heard about the shell, and so he went back the next morning and asked the chief of the repair crew if he could have that shell as a souvenir. He said, no, actually, some of the intelligence officers came and they got the shell. And not only did they get that shell, but they got the 11 other shells that had landed in the side of the plane, most of them in the gas tanks. None of them had exploded. And so the intelligence group had come and taken them and they took them to a, you know, an unarming diffusing center and they opened them up and there was no, no uh, explosive material in any one of the 11 shells. Instead, they found a note in each one. They didn't recognize it, but somebody thinks, thought, I think it's Czechoslovakian. So they found somebody on the base, came, he read it, and they realized that in one of the munitions plants, there was forced labor in that Czech country, and these people were trying to sabotage the Germans' weapons by not putting explosives in. Instead, they put a note, this is all we can do for you for now. In that interview, they're closing it up, and they asked Bedner, the guy who was interviewing, said, if you had a chance to meet one of those people that put that note in and didn't put explosives, knowing that what they did saved your life and everyone in your crew. You would have been dead otherwise. If any one of those had exploded, if you could meet or you happened to meet one of those Czech individuals, what would you say to them? (laughs) He started crying. And through tears he said, they saved my life. They saved all of our lives. I don't think I could say anything but just hug them and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. God saved your life. God took the explosiveness out of damnation for you and me. God has given us forgiveness and grace 
How can we not but sing about how great this God is? How righteous this God is? How caring this God is? How loving this God is? Jesus knows my every word and deed. Jesus longs to meet my deepest need. He lives now to intercede. He will surely stand by me. My God is a righteous God. My God is a holy God. My God is a faithful God. He will surely stand by me. This morning you're here, and you do not know of that forgiveness of God Almighty. You're not sure you're on your way to heaven. We have staff headed over to those doors right there. They will gladly show you from the Bible how you can be sure of God's forgiveness, God's grace forgiving you this day and giving you a hope of eternity, a home in heaven. You are more than welcome as we sing another stanza of praise to the Lord to get up, to go and talk to these individuals, any of them. There's, door, or there's rooms down that hall that are private that they will talk with you, they will pray with you. You go ahead. You do that while we sing about this great God this morning. Christ has saved me from sin's penalty. Christ will keep. Wow, think about that. He guides through life's stormy sea. He will surely stand by me. My God is a righteous God. Amen. God, amen. He's a wonderful God. God is a faithful God. He will surely stand by me. And we don't understand why you would, but we are so grateful that you do. Thank you, thank you, thank you for standing by us, for giving us grace day in and day out. Help us not to take advantage of this grace by thinking that gives us permission to sin. Help us to be humbled by this grace, to live our lives for your glory to the best possible. We praise you, we worship you, we thank you. In the name of Jesus, Amen.